Hello, and welcome to Tech UK's Look Ahead podcast. As part of our relaunch of Policy Pulse, we caught up with some leading voices in the tech sector over the summer. Neil Ross, our Associate Director for Policy, spoke to Adam Hawksby, Felicity Birch, Henry Parker, Kate Royce, Rajana Bellamy, and Leo Ringer to hear what they had to say about where the tech sector is now and where they think it's going to be in the next year. Adam Hawksby is Deputy Director of Onward, a centre-right think tank. Thanks very much for coming to our conference. And, and you joined the panel, obviously, on boosting uh, digital adoption and productivity across the economy. What do you think is potentially the most effective intervention, i.e., you know, getting the support to the people who need it most? So this was a big point of discussion on the panel. I think there was a difference in view. So I think that in order to get technology adopted by firms, you need, uh, particularly where the gap for those firms is not necessarily that there's not an incentive. There'll always be a profit incentive for them to do so. Um, and also not that they are, I don't know, not aware that some of these technologies are being used, particularly when it comes to things like large language models that will be in the press and they'll be familiar with. The gap is not quite understanding what it might mean to implement in their organization and being supported to implement it. Um, so the question is, how do you deliver some of that support and how do you bridge that understanding gap? My view and my kind of experience has been that locally based organisations, um, usually not public sector, but usually um, either a trade body or uh, an organisation that is known to a particular business. So that might be even a neighbourhood association or an organisation that isn't overtly about tech um, is going to be best placed to deliver some of this support. You've seen that with um uh, digital inclusion on an individual level. So, you know, people in their own lives adopting technology, becoming more digitally native. That's often through organizations that are locally based and that are known. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting one and, and kind of plays off some of the feedback that came through. I should say, helped grow and helped grow digital or helped grow management and helped grow digital. Um, one of the feedback that kickbacks you might get from government is, you know, how do we measure how this stuff is being effective and, and being taken up? Do you think we're thinking about the sort of the way we measure things wrong or do we maybe just need to be a bit more risk accepting? So I do think that we're measuring things in the wrong way. I mean, the, the thing about um, help to grow is that measurement there or the measurement that failed on was primarily on participation as opposed to on impact. There just were not enough people engaging with the programme to justify the level of spend. Um, and there are not particularly good measures of how well um, technology is being adopted. That's true for both basic technologies and frontier technologies. We've got some good surveys that have been run by organizations like Tech UK and others, which give us a bit of an insight, but they're not kind of regular enough that you can compare them over time. So I think that having some more basic measures of the use of technology by businesses would be very helpful. Do you think the UK is well positioned to take advantage of this stuff when it starts to appear? Like are our businesses in that mindset? Um, uh, you know, as we're kind of expecting these things to come online shortly. So I think um, we really need to break down the UK into the different parts of our business ecosystem, right? So there will be some businesses that are very, very good at adopting these bits of technology and will invest a lot of money in doing so. They're probably going to be some of the larger companies that basically will invest in um, uh, people that understand these technologies. They might invest in consultants, whatever else, and they might be quite slow in adopting it because they're big kind of monolithic firms, but they will understand the advantage and they will be spending money on this. The others are just kind of digitally native companies or much smaller companies that will um, create uh, their products or their services uh, using some of these technologies. And so they'll be able to be much more um, nimble and much more effective. The organisations that I don't think will adopt these technologies are probably the long tail of low productivity firms in the economy. Now, some of those 
um, probably just need to die, to be honest. We, we do need um, uh, a kind of tax system and uh, kind of debt forgiveness system, or rather the opposite, a system which recalls some of the COVID debts from some of these organisations so that they cease to exist. Um, but there are others that with support could become more productive, particularly in parts of the country that do not have enough private sector employment and so can't really afford to have that level of churn in, in private companies. Right, and so, so I'd be really really skeptical of any sort of debt forgiveness model right so anything which is we're going to give massive loans to loads of smes in order to buy up kit or train people i worry about that because i have no confidence that they'll pay off that debt um, or at least that a, a significant proportion of them will so we need to look at other models to try and help these organizations along and not just add to the significant amount of debt that some of these zombie companies already carry when you've been thinking about these issues and also talking to kind of your political cohorts what do you get? What's your sense of what politicians really think of kind of tech and AI? So my sense is that an appreciation of the scale of change that is likely to occur due to artificial intelligence over the next 5, 10, 20 years is starting to land on members of parliament. But it is still um, a pretty broad appreciation, right? So it is still, look, I recognise there are going to be shifts in labour markets, in um, our relationship with other countries, etc., etc., but not, I think, enough of a discussion of some of the things that might need to occur, how you might need to balance our tax system um, away from labour and towards capital if what you have is labour replacing forms of technology. The way that we might need to regulate, I think people understand that you might need to regulate economically. Some of these firms might need to have um, uh, limits or guidelines or you know, um, uh, kind of a pathway that helps them to deliver models more effectively. I think about... Um, the use of artificial intelligence in uh, autonomous vehicles, that's a world where regulation would be helpful to that sector, right? Because it can grow. Um, what there probably isn't is an appreciation of some of the other forms of regulation that might be quite required outside of the economy. What happens when you have AI generated images being used in courts, right? So um, false uh, evidence that is being put forward that's very difficult for humans to detect and the difference between, between a real one and one of those. So what we're trying to do at Onward is be a bridge between, you know, we're not going to be the AI experts on many of these topics, but be a bridge between those that are thinking about some of these issues in academia and the private sector um, and members of parliament, because that channel of communication isn't always wide open. So we're, we're trying to do some of the education. How optimistic are you about, you know, our chance of actually confronting some of these challenges, you know, over the next five to 10 years? So I am hugely buoyed by and optimistic about um, this Prime Minister's focus on AI. It's clearly one of the small number of things that he really cares about and is willing to prioritise. And the AI Summit is a reflection of that. But um, the LLM task force and some of the other bits and pieces where he has invested his time shows that this is something he cares about and recognises this could be an opportunity for the UK. And I think that signalling matters, the meetings he's had with the chief execs of DeepMind and um, OpenAI and others. Um, I am more pessimistic about our ability to shift the British state quickly enough. So when we did a report a little while ago called Wired for Success, in which we highlighted the fact that although we're trying to move fast and break things when it comes to AI, we are putting the procurement of a new 900 million exascale computer through a treasury classic kind of five case business case model that's going to take months or maybe years when it needs to take probably weeks. So there are some pretty big changes that we need to make to how the state operates in order to support a movement towards um, being a science superpower. Uh, you know, a potential change of government might, might be on the cards. 
North the Labour Party was to come in 2024, 2025, whatever it might be, as the leader in government, you know, whether in a minority or, or majority or whatever form, should they keep decent or do you think um, they should scrap it? Or actually is is the question not really about keeping or maintaining decent, it's about the wider change in, in the kind of way the state operates? I think a future Labour government should keep decent. Um, I think it is a an important signal about our seriousness around science and tech. I think if the UK is going to compete globally, we are not going to do so on scale of manufacturing. We're not going to do so on scale of investment. In fact, we're not going to do so probably on, on scale, right? We are a, a medium-sized country that doesn't have access to a domestic market the size of China or the US. Competing on our ability to innovate, that's both some of our universities, but also the way that we can adopt that innovation into um, startup scale-ups and world-beating companies, that is somewhere where we can compete in our cultural cachet internationally, you know, English being the dominant language, those things help. And so DC is a way to coordinate the activity to get that done. Yeah, I think that we, we, we would totally agree with that. I certainly remember during the pandemic days when we were trying to get stuff into the Secretary of State's box to talk about the importance of digital infrastructure, data centres, keeping the internet on, your competition was with museums and cultural institutions. So yeah. All these things are obviously hugely important. They should have their own distinct voices around the cabinet table. Irrespective of what happens at the general election, there's going to be huge turnover in the number of MPs. Uh, both on the Labour side as well as on the Conservative side and others. What, what would sort of be your kind of like advice to the next generation of MPs when it comes to thinking about tech and digital? Because, you know, potentially we're going to have quite a lot of, you know, potentially fairly young, potentially fairly digital native MPs coming in at a time when these questions are going to be, you know, top of the list in terms of the future of the British state, but also our geopolitical relationships. So I think part of my advice for members of Parliament would be be specific on issues where they think there are barriers to um, science and technology being adopted. So, for example, um, going and doing a speech on how important it is that we are leaders in regulation for the future of tech, fine. Um, being really specific, so saying to the Department for, tech, uh, Department for Transport, you are going to need a bit of primary legislation to allow real-world trials of autonomous vehicles. If you do this, then companies will stay here. If you don't, they will probably move to the Netherlands or elsewhere. That's the sort of issue where a politician can have a real impact. There are a whole range of others around trade, around um, kind of infrastructure and what sort of infrastructure we might need, uh, either in terms of you know, housing or transport or whatever else. That would be my advice is, yes, there is a big um, raft of policy changes, legislation we're going to need in order to lead on technology. But be specific on what some of those might be, because that's the way that you're going to get government's attention and get change made. I've come to the end of the list of questions I had. But was there anything else you specifically wanted to say on this podcast or something going to guys? So I've been reading um, Darren Ajamoglu's book, Power and Progress, recently, right? And one thing I think will be really interesting in the next few years is a broader conversation about power in relation to some of these new technologies. Because at the moment, a huge amount of the power sits with a fairly small number of investors, companies um, and places. And... As these technologies start to grow in their importance in our everyday lives, there'll be a question about who governs them and how. And we're right at the foothills of that conversation at the moment. And what I haven't seen at the moment is any serious conversation among politicians that finds a middle ground between, you know, these things are terrible, we must regulate them and protect ourselves from them. And these things are fantastic and we have no option but to allow them into our society. We haven't seen that middle ground of okay, what role do we want them to play? What role do we not want them to play? And what are the tools available to try and navigate that path? 
Um, there is a politician that talks about kind of walls, floods and bridges. You know, bad people build walls against change. Others let them flood over a community. Who's going to build a bridge? And I'm yet to see what that bridge is to a sort of tech future um, in which power is discussed. Felicity Birch is the executive director of the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, a government expert body enabling the trustworthy use of data and AI. Thanks very much, Felicity, for, for joining us and also for speaking at our conference back in June. Um, for those of for those who kind of weren't lucky enough to be at the conference and hear from you directly, I wonder if you could, first of all, by sort of explaining a bit more about, you know, who the CDEI are, what kind of work you do and, and how you fit into the kind of broad uh, landscape of how the UK is approaching artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies. Yeah, well, thanks very much for having me along and always really uh, pleased to talk to Tech UK. So the CDEI Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation is part of the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology. So we work really closely uh, alongside sort of AI policy uh, team. Um, but the CDEI's role is uh, to lead the government's work in enabling trustworthy innovation using data and AI. Um, and really thinking about sort of innovation that where sort of ethical risks are, are holding people back. Um, and we uh, support government organisations and work with the private sector to try and leverage the potential of data driven technologies, including on some really high profile and sensitive uh, policy areas and thinking about um, places where these technologies might interact with, with vulnerable people. Um, and I think that this this matters to business, this should matter to the Tech UK uh, community for, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, um, it's vital for the economy. Um, you know, I think um, effective data sharing can play a really important role in economic growth. As OECD analysis has suggested that uh, effective data sharing in the UK's wider economy could have an impact up to 4% on GDP, so it's not small. Um, but also, you know, if we really want to uh, unlock the benefits of AI, um, then trust in AI systems and how they are used is actually a key enabler. Um, I think where people don't trust AI um, from an organization's perspective, uh, they could be reluctant to invest in it. Um, certainly heard lots of sort of companies talking about, well, I'm not really sure I want to buy this tool. The, the term snake oil is sometimes used um, and people don't necessarily know how to kind of trust and verify that the, that the systems are going to work. But also, um, you know, where organisations do adopt AI systems without understanding whether they're trustworthy, whether they work, there is a risk that that will cause real world harm, which will, you know, from a business perspective, like firstly, obviously, you don't want to cause harm. But secondly, there's the kind of reputational impact um, and all that goes along with that as well. So what we're really trying to do at the CDI end, and again, thinking both from a, from a government and from a private sector perspective, is it's kind of how can we um, answer and address some of those challenges? And we work on uh, three key areas. I'm sure we'll get into this in a little bit more, but I'll just, I'll just uh, line them out here. So uh, they are responsible data access, uh, AI assurance and algorithmic transparency. Brilliant. Yeah, and I, I certainly think, you know, given if, I, if I data and AI has a potential to boost the economy by 4%, no one's going to sort of sniff at that at this at this current time. And uh, But as you say, it's hugely important that businesses and consumers can trust the technology that's being yeah. sold to them. And one of the things that you brought up at our um, conference, but then I think you also had an event on the next day, was this question of sort of AI insurance. Um, I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about what AI assurance is and sort of maybe some of the benefits it can bring to people who are thinking about buying AI technology. Yeah, so AI assurance kind of covers a, a range of um, tools and techniques. Um, 
but, but sort of covers things like standards, verification, certification. Um, and, you know, we see this in all sorts of other um, in all sorts of other sectors. You have product standards, you know, like food safety through to cybersecurity that help you understand whether something sort of works in a, in a verifiable way. And really, they are AI assurance services are all about helping to grow confidence in AI systems um, by measuring, by evaluating um, and communicating like really reliable evidence about their trustworthiness. And I think, you know, firstly, I think assurance is really good for people who are buying the technology and it's good for the providers of the technology because it provides the basis for people who are buying the technology uh, to trust the products, to know that they're going to be safe, that they're going to work the way that they want them to, um, that maybe they meet certain certain standards around addressing uh, bias or harm. Um, and then for, for industry who are selling these products, um, I think it helps them to demonstrate that to their uh, that to their customer as well. And I think the other thing that's quite interesting about AI assurance and thinking about it as, as an industry, um, particularly thinking about building on the strength of our professional services sector alongside our technology sector, um, we think that um, it has the potential to be a really big industry uh, in its own right. And so if you look at the, the cyber assurance um, industry, you're talking about sort of multi, multi-billion pounds. So again, a really big economic opportunity across um, across the UK. Um, and CDI has been really leading the way um, in this space. A couple of years ago now, we published our roadmap to effective AI assurance, which was uh, one of the world's sort of first of these documents, um, and really sort of set out the priority areas to build that flourishing ecosystem in the UK. Um, but we've also been working with, with Tech UK. You mentioned the, the event we had the day after the conference, which was, of course, with uh, with you guys as well. Um, and that was the launch of our catchily named portfolio of AI assurance techniques, um, but a really, really important piece of work. So one of the things I've kind of heard quite consistently from um, from industry is, you know, I actually I want to use AI well, but I don't necessarily know what good looks like. Um, and AI assurance is fairly nascent. It is, you know, relatively early days. So the point of the um, portfolio of assurance techniques was to start demonstrating what industry is already doing and sort of give businesses ideas um, to sort of learn from and build from um, and share kind of examples of, of emerging practice in, in industry. And I think it's been really great from our end to partner with, with Tech UK um, on that and was really pleased to sort of see the, the breadth of interest in, in these techniques. And I do think that that kind of government um, business intersection there is, is hugely important because obviously it is, it is often the businesses that are developing, deploying um, these technologies. Yeah. And when, when we talk about AI insurance, you know, what are some of the hallmarks of like what an assurance process might look like or what a kind of assured product might have? Is it, you know, the quality of data that's used? Is it, you know, avenues for redress? Just I was interested to get a sense of like what what those kind of what it is, you're kind of what reassurance you're giving to the customer, basically, uh, when they buy a product like that. Yeah, so I mean, those those examples are are good things. I mean, it's it's essentially like what would your what would your customer care about when they're when they're buying the product? So yeah, I mean, data quality is a really good one to point to. And frankly, that's you know when I talk to uh, to sort of CDOs, that's the number one issue that comes up. It's like is is the data that's gone into this. Um, is it good? Like, is it accurate? Is it high quality? You know, does it have any kind of issues? Um, does it have any issues with it? Was it was it obtained legally? Um, but I think there is there is that kind of real real breadth and and no doubt the kinds of questions that people who are procuring AI 
are going to want to answer are going to become more sort of detailed and um and complex but you know that everything you've raised there kind of right um how how might you um kind of redress a challenge of the system it all of all of these are questions that these kind of tools could could answer and really that's a question for the businesses who are using them it's like what do you what do you need to demonstrate to your customer what are they worrying about so both on a legal side but also from a kind of business reputation perspective obviously we're going to have this ai summit in uh we think november time obviously date to be confirmed um what do you think are some of the kind of like the big opportunities that the uk has to get out of this uh summit so I think this is a really exciting moment for the UK to demonstrate that we are leading on AI safety, that we can be part of the international uh, conversation on this and we can um, we can really sort of um, demonstrate um, and, and seek agreement on some of the safety measures that are needed to tackle the risks from emerging um, emerging AI and the new developments on on AI technologies. And I think just being really at that at the frontier of that conversation, that's a huge opportunity for uh, for the UK right now. Um, and I think what's really exciting is that you know, lots of the work that we've done already has demonstrated that the UK has has led on other aspects of the uh, of AI safety in the past. And so I hope also that some of the work that uh, CDI is doing in this space uh, will continue to push the, the safety agenda, particularly actually where people are thinking about adopting uh, more narrow AI. And we already have, have done a lot of leading work in that space. Our um, algorithmic transparency uh, recording standard was one of the world's first and certainly um, has been recognised by the OECD as a sort of leading um, and innovative um, intervention. We've had our Privacy Enhancing Technologies Challenge Prize, which we ran in partnership with the with the US government um, and kind of continue to sort of push the push the frontier of, of that way of, of kind of assuring um, measuring and, and ensuring AI is safe. So I think, yeah, the summit is this really big opportunity for the UK to lead the way at the frontier, but building on the fact that we've been doing lots and lots of leading work, of course, in the policy space as well, um, up until now as well. Lots of people are kind of talking about AI in the media and the news as if it's sort of only been invented in the last six months. But obviously, it's a long running technology. It's been being used for a long time. Lots of thought has already gone into this kind of work, you know, you mentioned AI assurance and uh, algorithmic transparency. I wonder if you could just give us a sense of like, actually, what is the volume of work that's been done in the UK on this in the past? Well, obviously, I'm probably best placed to uh, to talk about the work that the CDI has uh, has been doing. Um, but you know, I've been at been at CDI myself for the last two years, and a big focus of uh, of the work while I've been there is very much this sort of point about how how are we enabling innovation. Uh, talking about the fact that yes, we want um, we want these technologies um, to to deliver all of the great outcomes for society that they could, um, but also really understanding um, what some of the risks around deploying those are. And the work that we've done at CDI kind of covers the the breadth of that. So firstly, that a lot of um, public engagement. So we have our public attitudes uh, tracker survey, uh, which I think was a was a world first in terms of a in terms of a sort of ongoing um, tracker looking at um, how the public feel about the way that uh, that AI is used um, and where they think some of their sort of biggest concerns are, but also what might make them feel more comfortable uh, when these technologies are deployed. Uh, CDI does partnerships with, um, with government departments who are looking at deploying these tools 
Um, and of course, we've been uh, doing the work I've mentioned on algorithmic transparency, uh, so developing our algorithmic transparency recording standard, um, really trying to push forward um, the, the use um, and understanding of privacy enhancing technologies, both with our privacy enhancing technologies adoption guide, our pets adoption guide, um, but also our, um, our sort of wider responsible data access uh, programme and all of the work on AI assurance that we've been talking about. And I think we're, we're trying there to continue to push uh, push things forward with our uh, Fairness Innovation Challenge, which is a really uh, exciting piece of work that we um, uh, launched back in June with Tech UK um, and with the EHRC and, um, and ICO, um, as well as others, which is really looking to answer this question about how can we, um, how can we verify whether um, algorithmic uses are there, which is obviously going to be a really key uh, regulatory question, but I think a really important question for anyone who's using these technologies as well. Yeah, absolutely. That that question of fairness has really come to mind, I think, a lot when we think about the applications um, of AI. How, how is the UK collaborating with our kind of partners on this? You know, the question about AI regulation is it's global in nature, right? These technologies are not bound by any jurisdiction. So it's interesting to understand the kind of work that you through the CDEI are doing to partner with, you know, the UK's allies and other countries around the world. Yeah, I think there's lots of lots of really great examples uh, of collaborating internationally um, and probably a few that might be of interest to your members. Uh, so firstly, you know, I've talked to talked a fair bit about uh, AI assurance and AI standards and we know that interoperability of standards really matters to businesses and uh, and innovators so as part of our program of work on assurance uh, we are trying to ensure that uh, AI assurance uh, approaches and techniques are recognized internationally um, and in support of cross-border trade in AI. Um, secondly, I think international collaboration is a really great way to drive forward innovation. Um, and we talked uh, a little bit earlier as well about uh, our privacy enhancing technologies work. Um, and we've been partnering with the with the US government um, on those technologies and recently announced as part of the uh, Atlantic Declaration that we'll be doing further, further work with the US on this. I, and I just think really, really exciting to sort of bring together um, the thinking on both sides of the Atlantic there. So I think, you know, just a, just a couple of opportunities, but a, a really important strand to that work. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, tech is changing over time. There are innovations at the moment. Some people didn't weren't able to quite project chat GPT and even fewer the kind of massive impact it had on the kind of public psyche around AI. Um, for you, when you're thinking about, you know, what's coming up in the year ahead, what for you do you think will be the next big AI or big tech moment that we might see in the next sort of 12 months? Well, do you know, when I when I was thinking about this question and the big tech moment, I was definitely thinking in terms of events. Um, and I was I was going to say I was going to say a really nice line about well, obviously one of the key events in my uh, in my calendar is the uh, Tech UK Digital Ethics of Summit. Of course, which is... every year. <laughs> Which is which is always up there. Um, although of course uh, this year the uh, the AI summit um, will be a big event for all of us at DSIT as well. Um, but I suppose the thing that I'm you know is is always on my mind is is sort of where are those innovations happening on AI trust and, and AI safety. Um, and what I really hope is that the work that we've announced around our Fairness Innovation Challenge will drive both sort of technical and governance innovations and some really great solutions from industry uh, and academia as well. Um, and, you know, I continue to, to want to see sort of see 
AGI in that space where when it comes to sort of thinking about governance of AI um, and best ways of using it, we um, continue to be leaders alongside the industry and public sector that we're looking to support. Kate Royce is the director of the Hartree Centre, a research lab that is part of UKRI's Science and Technology Facilities Council, investigating supercomputing, data science and AI applications. What do you think will be the big computing moment of next year? Are there any innovations or experiments um, uh, or events that you're looking out for? For me, I'm I'm looking out for the impact of generative AI. I think that this year, um, I was talking with colleagues a couple of days ago and on exascale computing, and we were talking about the impact generative AI has already had in the science community on producing blog posts in sourcing where anomalies are in large data sets. You you can't believe the impact that that's having. Um, I think the big thing that's going to change is we're going to get into specialist models. So we've got chat GPT that's out there, it's off the shelf. But I think where the community is going to go, particularly those communities that are have very sensitive data, is going to move into a world of very specialist models. And I think they're going to be amazing what they can do. I wouldn't be surprised if we start hearing talk about the rise of general intelligence in AI. I think that's the next big thing coming around the corner. I don't think 2024 will see it, but I do think we'll start having people hyping their ability to do it. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, for you, What's been the biggest impact this year of generative AI? What's like the, the one thing that you were using it maybe in your work or seeing colleagues use it? And it was the kind of the wow moment. They're like, oh, this is really here. I think it was when I turned around and I was speaking to uh, our R&D department in Hartree and I was talking to them all about how they were writing papers, writing. I wanted people to do more summaries of the research work, more case studies. And then it turned out that a lot of them were starting to use generative AI to, as a tool, not just to deliver it, but as a tool to help them speed up on that process. And you started to realize that this thing is here now and everybody's been using it. And obviously we then had a massive conversation within Hartree about um, ethics in AI. What is responsible AI? What does responsible innovation look like? Uh, and we started to think about what a workflow and what a risk-based profile should be and what are the questions we should be asking ourselves. When, when industry come and ask us to help them with things, well, what should we be asking them about? What should we be talking to them about? Yeah, and when you when you said earlier, you know, you're looking at these sort of potential specialist models coming down the yeah. track, how transformational do you think that would be? Because you sort of hear a lot now about people saying, well, there, here's like 15 ways to improve, improve your productivity using ChatGPT or mm -hmm. 10 ways to you know, market better using ChatGPT. But it's obviously quite a generalist tool. Yeah. What, what do you think the kind of the scale of the impact of these more specialist models will be? Oh, I know in science, in, in the world that I, I, I inhabit, if you like, um, specialist generative AI models for things like uh, material discovery, um, drug discovery, research. Um, so you might want to be using it for astronomy at the moment. If you think the James Webb telescope, shortly um, this new square kilometre array, which is another radio telescope, massive projects going to be generating huge amounts of data. Those are going to need specialist AI models to do those sort of work. You're not going to be able to use it off the shelf. 
um, chat GPT type model to do that. And are they coming soon? Do you think they're like one year away, two years away? Well, I, I, I think, I think it, we tie into the next big thing that happened this year, which was Frontier coming online and, and the world, you know, we're into the exascale world. And I think that's what we're going to see those models going to need. They're going to need exascale compute to be able to number crunch through all that data and to run those training models. Otherwise, I don't see how else you can do it. Given what you said on generative AI and its different uses, how transformative do you think it's going to be? Or what's the potential there for the UK getting its own X-scale computer? Um, do you think that's going to make a kind of really substantial difference? It's going to make a step change massively. I think the where we are using X-scale compute is on new energy sources. So looking at net zero, fusion, particularly at Hartree, we're doing a huge amount of work for UK AEA. Um, but then you go into the drug discovery world, the material discovery world. We, we have to find new ways of generating, say, materials for batteries, for example. Um, we can't do that without exascale compute. And I think it will be very interesting next year to start to see computers like Frontier, El Capitan in the States, um, actually starting to generate results because that's what we haven't quite seen yet. We People, they're still in the, the sort of development stage with this new with this new compute power. Um, but for the UK to have impact, what we're going to have to do is to look at developing a lot of work and training around software development, because what the states have shown us very well with their X-scale compute program is that you have to invest just as much money in developing the skills and the software as you do in actually built by building the hardware at the beginning. Is there something you're particularly looking to see, or is it, as you said, you want to see that package that comes alongside that focuses on, you know, the software development so different people can use it as well as a plan for skills, etc. What I'm really excited about was that we're starting to talk as a community um, around it's going to be very expensive to run anything on an X-scale computer because it is expensive anyway. So how do we make sure that of all the data that's being generated off these amazing machines that everybody can get access? And I started working with a group of um, specialists this week, actually, where we've been talking about how do we enable more people to get access to that data? That will be the game changer because it will be that um democratization of of the data so that everybody can have access even if you're not running stuff on an exascale compute you may well be using data that was generated by an exascale compute an exascale compute is just a box of very fancy hardware hardware there's a lot else that needs to go around it and those supporting services so not only is there training and skills that we've talked about porting everything onto gpus much more energy efficient code but there's a lot of work that's got to be done to get, get ourselves to that. But the other side is in, is in data archiving and curating and working with the domain specialists within each of the scientific disciplines to support that within the exascale compute um, facility, if you like, how that's going to be, be developed. So I'm quite excited by that because I think accelerated scientific discovery is going to be something that we can't even imagine now about how fast that's going to be. Um, the big thing in astronomy is, is finding planets with life on. And 
If you've got a supercomputer that can crunch through those numbers and can look out for planets with ozone, because that's the generally the key indicator, um, think how much faster you can start to do that with all that data coming in and how much quicker we can do it. Okay, so not just new generative AI in 2024, but also potentially finding aliens if we get the computers up and running. Absolutely. But, but <laughs> yeah, that's I that, haven't yeah. even touched on quantum computing yet. Yes, yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you sort of if you had, um, you know, government is obviously more and more interested in this space. You know, we've seen the yes. big focus on computers to the future compute review. Quantum is obviously one of the kind of core technologies mm -hmm. they're looking at. Um, for you, what's the kind of big policy question that the government's tackling with that you want to see answered next year? So I think within the future compute review, there are 10 recommendations and we haven't really got through all those 10 recommendations. So what I would like to see the government working on is to go back to the first part of what that review suggested, which was to produce a 10 year roadmap and look at the sustainability and long term sustainability of compute within the UK. Buying one exascale compute is fantastic, but in five to six years time, that will be obsolete and we'll need another one. So what does the whole ecosystem of the UK look like? How does public-private partnerships work in that arena? Um, how is the private sector going to be working in that arena? Because they are also doing research. They also will want to have access to some of this novel technologies that we're developing. So I really do want to push them towards that. And I suppose the other thing that we are very keen on now is walking people along this line of responsible AI, just because we can do things. And this has been the same in science for quite a long time now. Just because we can do things doesn't mean to say that we want to do that. And how are we going to come together as a wider community to manage that? Because the only way that works is if we all together, private, public, charity sectors, all work together around it. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I was interested to get your thoughts as well on um, we obviously have this AI safety summit that's being held by the government yes. in, in November. Um, what, do you, what do you think would be kind of like the most valuable takeaway or the most valuable achievement that the UK could get out of that kind of summit? To understand, we have to take a risk-based approach to, to responsible AI and that we have to understand what decisions we're making and why we're making them. It doesn't mean to say that today we are necessarily going to make the right decisions all the time. But if we have a decision process where it is, it is measurable and people can go back to it and understand why we made those decisions, I think that's incredibly important. I also think there are an awful lot of things we can do around cybersecurity, around and partly talking about specialist models, pulls sensitive data into areas where we can lock stuff off. There's a lots of stuff you can do, but we, we have to do it knowledgeably i think my concern at the moment is we're just doing stuff because we can in some areas my last question is really sort of what, what predictions you've got uh over the sort of next 12 months what what are you is there, is there anything that you really think is going to happen or change over the next 12 months that's um in this sector i think we haven't touched on quantum and quantum's been a real interesting one hasn't it because quantum um even since my time of 18 months leading the heart tree center it was a technology that was very, very hyped and everybody said, well, it's on the hype skirt. It, it's not doing anything. What we're seeing now is quantum advantage theoretically being proven in several publications and peer review papers this year. What we've not seen is it scaled up to real use. And a lot of 
tech providers now are saying they are not far away from being able to do that. It would be very, very interesting in 2024 to see what happens in that arena. And can the hardware providers really provide what they are saying that we they can provide? And can we actually show quantum advantage? Um, what do you think the first kind of what, what's going to be the first the first use case and test case that shows that they have achieved that? You know, people talk about quantum application across a whole range of fields, but what mm. what for you will be the one where once they've done this thing, it shows that quantum is kind of truly here? So what what we've shown in Hartree's theoretically is that you can pull out um, the machine learning part of the workflow, put it into a quantum machine, put it back into a classic compute workflow. And we've shown that you can actually select better, better molecules. Um, they tested it out on COVID-19, on the drugs that they were using to, to see whether that would have any effect. And interestingly, it did manage to pick better molecules that were actually used in the fight against COVID-19. So I do believe that if we can scale it up, if the hardware can come up with the software, then that's the area that I think we'll see the most advantage. Brilliant. Oh, uh, thanks so much, Kate. Is there anything else you wanted to say just before we go? I think it's just an incredibly exciting time to be in technology at the moment. And, and there is so much moving. I mean, we've just covered it. Exascale compute would be exciting enough, but we've also got quantum. and. AI is just going like this at the moment. Mm -hmm. Henry Parker is head of government affairs at AI startup Logically, which uses AI to combat misinformation online. 2024 is going to be a big year for elections around the world. How do you think AI is going to affect these? Well, I think it has the potential to fundamentally affect them. Um, Logically specialises in managing electoral integrity risk. It's the basic use case that our technology was first applied to. And we've been dealing with huge volumes of mis- and disinformation around the world for four years now. In our very first bit of work, which was for the Indian state of Maharashtra in 2019, we detected 40,000 individual false news items circulating just on election day and results day. But the key thing is that was all human generated. Um, so was Russia's famous effort to disrupt the US presidential election in 2016. I think the difference in 2024 is that we have generative AI. The capability is now there for anyone with a relatively low level of technical skill to run a campaign on the scale that arguably Russia did then, but at far lower cost and arguably with higher quality content. You won't need people to understand the differences between US and UK English, for example. The AI can do that. And it's far more likely than it ever was for someone sitting in their bedroom, if they wanted, to create a deep fake or a fake news factory, precisely target it to an audience they know is receptive, and get that content circulating according to whatever malign objective they have. We know that because we've tested the tool's capability to do it. And we found that in 85% of cases, we were able to generate false images commonly associated with electoral manipulation using them. Moderation is limited. And we published that work. So to a degree, what we're seeing is the democratisation of disinformation. Electoral manipulation has been a reality for some years. And what's new is that it's just far easier to do. How can we guard against the potential misuses of AI and disinformation in elections? 
I think it's through a combination of industry taking collective action, the right kind of innovation, and through thoughtful and agile regulation. I think the collective action comes in the form of initiatives like the Content Authenticity Initiative. Uh, watermarking AI-generated images will help. But unfortunately, there's no parallel solution for synthetic text. So that solution isn't applicable. Uh, innovation can help. Uh, and what we're trying to do is use AI to actually determine not just if something is fake, but to detect whether a piece of content or a post or a series of posts is actually part of an organised disinformation effort. Our AI works in tandem with expert human analysts to see if what we're analysing is actually an effort, for example, to disrupt an election. There's a role for regulation. Uh, we think, for example, the new foreign interference offence that's in the National Security Act and it's linked to the Online Safety Bill is actually an important step. But what matters now is how that's operationalised. Uh, we can train AI to spot foreign interference in elections and we can help platforms fulfil their obligations in this space. But what does government actually mean by foreign interference? What does adequate risk mitigation look like? How proactive do platforms have to be? These are all big questions that haven't been answered yet. Another area we think is key is the new digital imprints regime. So from November, digital election content will have to be clearly attributable to source, just as the many, many leaflets you get through your door are. However, there is a significant loophole. If you aren't registered with the Electoral Commission and you haven't paid for an advert, then you don't have to affix an imprint digitally. Why that is isn't clear to us, especially as in Scotland, no such loophole exists except where a personal opinion is being expressed. If you could give the government one piece of advice for the year ahead as it develops new policies around AI and data, what would it be? It would be don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I do think that the UK's approach, as outlined in its white paper, is the right one. We do need an innovation-friendly framework. There are ways to manage AI safety risk without regulation that stifles it. And I've just described what one of those is. You can deliver reassurance and risk management without heavy-handed statutory approaches. On the data side, for small companies like us that manage a lot of personal data, there's a lot in the data bill to welcome, and we'll certainly benefit from that. So let's just get on and pass it. What do you think are the opportunities of the AI Safety Summit being hosted by the UK in the autumn? I think for us, it would be the UK being seen to have delivered some kind of consensus around what AI guardrails need to look like. What's important is that we don't land on one silver bullet and say, job done. As I've said, it's going to take a more collective approach, a more holistic approach, where you harness AI itself to manage AI risk. Uh, you use thoughtful, harmonised regulation and you use collective industry action, um, not just technology. Uh, if we see that kind of complicated, but I think realistic and effective approach, it will be a success. Bojana Bellamy is president of the Centre for Information Policy Leadership, a global privacy and data policy think tank. Great, so on our, on our first question, uh, in your opinion, what do you think is going to be the next big uh, advancement in tech that we might see kind of over the next 12 months? You know, maybe you're thinking about the development of an existing technology or a new application. So, so what do you think is like the big thing to watch out for over the next year? Okay, so my, my crystal ball out, um, here is what I think might be some of the uh, focus in terms of technology developments for the next year. 
I mean, certainly we're going to see a, a wider adoption of AI technology, especially large language models and generative AI in normal business practices and uh, in consumer facing applications is going to become much more prevalent uh, everywhere. Uh, and, and I think people will start to get used to um, working with these tools, particularly in the business context. Um, so secondly, um, it's something that I, I kind of said, I would have said last year was the year of neurotech, but I, it hasn't quite happened. And I think now that AI has developed so much, um, we, we, you know, we're going to see the new wave of technologies which are interacting with our brain and our body, um, and that's what neurotechnology is. And there is going to be a whole raft of new questions from policy and law perspective of how to regulate that, how to regulate our mind, our thinking, our brain. Um, and then finally, um, uh, it's something that I believe is more, uh, it's like sort of Metaverse 2.0, because Metaverse hasn't quite realized its potential, hasn't quite happened. But what I think is going to happen is the wider application of virtual reality, augmented reality, reality technologies, um, and that's what we're going to be seeing now with uh, both Meta, Meta, Apple, and some others uh, working on, on, obviously, the goggles and, and headsets, uh, but also more business applications, more health use uh, of, of these VR, AR technologies. Do you think these are going to be mainly sort of like business applications and scientific applications first, or, or are you sort of expecting consumers to start to pick this stuff up? I think there will be first scientific and business applications. Uh, you, you know, I was just recently doing a VR um, uh, experiment, and 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 I, I I saw myself how amazingly uh, potent it is to connect with people and be with and speak with people, perhaps in different places, and, and kind of share a moment. So I think businesses will pick pick this up first, but don't forget gaming is there already. What would sort of your advice be to the kind of the government, um, you know, in the year ahead to kind of continue the work that you think has been quite positive? And I think the advice should really be continue doing what you do well. I mean, UK does very well um, smart regulation and thinking about how to regulate in a way that is proportionate, that is pro-innovation, but also considers the risk. So it's really going to be important to continue doing that well and not you know, getting off the course. So focusing on use of technology versus technology per se, thinking about outcome-based rules, setting the goals to be achieved and letting industry compete on how to achieve it absolutely being crystal clear on the need for risk-based approach. Rules should be risk-based, meaning more compliance, more strict rules for areas which are higher risk and letting lower risk uh, not be as regulated. It means, secondly, allowing companies to prioritize compliance and calibrate compliance based on risk. And thirdly, it means for regulators who are overseeing application of the law as well as in enforcing to be absolutely risk-based in how they produce their guidance, how they focus on areas that they will be working on and how they enforce as well. So that's really what we mean by risk-based approach. UK does that very well. We have to continue. 
Um, and then giving more emphasis on accountability, organizational accountability. We think in this new world of digital regulation, this is going to be hugely, hugely important. And, and look, I know you're going to be asking me, actually, the question is to, as to what they should absolutely not do. And I think one thing that they should not do is to succumb to this media hype and politics of digital lawmaking, right? That's exactly what, what should not happen. I think we have to stay on course. But I, I would perhaps, Neil, and you heard me say this be, before, I would, I would say I do not believe UK's approach is a light touch approach. I think it's actually a, a, an innovative and smart and intelligent approach to regulation. It doesn't mean that the outcomes are going to be less. It just means that we're going to get there in different ways. You know, by, by for example, um, demanding organizations to be accountable and then enforcing that accountability or demanding them to demonstrate that accountability through assurance certification, that's not light touch, but it's actually lighter touch than setting ex-ante rules which become um, obsolete as the technology develops, right? What is the purpose of any law and regulation? Is it actually to set the rules and then catch those that break the rules or is it to ensure that we behave in a certain way and raise the standard of compliance uh, across the board and I would say the purpose of rules is to raise the level of compliance across the board um, and the regulators as well. Um, I was actually hosting, uh, moderating a session at the side event to G7 um, on AI and one of the big takeaways from that session where we had a number of big companies but also some regulators and an academic was that this new leapfrogging technology and AI absolutely requires new ways and modalities of working between lawmakers and policymakers and companies as well as regulators and companies. There has to be better engagement, more constructive dialogue, uh, more openness and transparency in sharing information, explaining how the technologies are working, where the business is going, what the use cases are going to be, and working together to actually address those risks and harms. And I think that requires very different way of doing things that we in the UK should really be very well suited in doing. The UK is hosting this uh, AI safety summit uh, in November or in the autumn at least. Um, what do you think? would make a summit like that a success? You know, what do you think the government should be trying to get out of it? Mm. I, mean, I mean, look, the first thing has to be the fact that no country is an island and no country can actually solve the AI conundrum, uh, whatever that is, reap the benefits and address the risks or regulate or not regulate on its own. Uh, this is the one where we absolutely require global uh, consolidation, global consideration, um, and, and, and also building bridges between different nations and, and thinking about how the rules may work in an interoperable way. So, you know, it is good that we, we might have that opportunity. So the Global Summit should not be about UK showcasing how great we are, but actually really, um, in addition to that, trying to reach some consensus, trying to build those bridges where the bridges could be built so that we have got as much as possible coherent global approach to um, regulating or, or considering AI as well. Um, I also think that, that the government must absolutely take this opportunity to give the voice to those who are developing 
those technologies. So data scientists, AI engineers, AI technologists, they have to be represented at the summit. They have to speak and so should the companies who are, do, who are developing and deploying AI as well. They're an incredibly important stakeholder. This can't be, uh, we can't just have politicians and law and policy makers serving something to the world. This has to be a collaborative process. So I would say, you know, think global, but also act local. Ultimately, after the summit, I'd like to see some of these um, best practices um, in terms of um, how we regulate AI, how we create a positive narrative around AI, uh, percolate through uh, the UK economy, and we really give also help to those UK businesses that need to, um, to get that help in terms of um, uh, building trustworthy and accountable AI. Leo Ringer is a co-founder and partner at Four Ventures, an early-stage VC focused on markets shaped by public policy and regulation. It has been a challenging year for startups and venture-funded companies. What have been the most pressing issues you have seen in your portfolio? It's certainly been a challenging year for startups and venture-funded companies, particularly in the context of the last couple of years, simply because the fundraising environment has changed substantially. Overall, that's probably a healthy thing because we're returning to more of a normal set of fundraising conditions. But the adjustment to that new normal is obviously painful for companies and investors that have become used to the last couple of years. The upshot of that is primarily that companies are finding it harder to fundraise or finding that the milestones they need to meet for each funding round are tougher. So we've seen a lot of bridge rounds, a lot of extensions, for example, between a pre-seed or a seed round, or in particular between a seed round and a series A to give companies more time to meet those metrics. The other dynamic I think we've seen is that the bar, particularly at series A, feels like it's yet to settle. And we hear very different things from different series A investors about what they consider to be the set of benchmarks they're looking for. And that's understandable because they themselves are looking out to the growth stages and later rounds where activity has been very, very low and are working back from that what they think they need to show those later stage investors in terms of traction from their own portfolio companies. So overall, I'd say it's the funding environment that's been most challenging for startups this year. We do see more startups taking on complex regulated markets, and that's actually at the core of our thesis at Form Ventures, that the most interesting the most impressive, impactful, and ultimately the biggest companies will be built. More and more startups are investing in regulated sectors. What are the kinds of conditions that make this more attractive? In these sectors and these markets that really matter for society and they tend to be the ones where policymakers are interested and either there are existing regulatory frameworks or policymakers are having to design regulatory frameworks for the first time. I think the reason we have a bit of an edge here in Europe on those kinds of sectors probably comes down to both the nature of RIP and the science we generate here, but also the role of our regulators in being somewhat proactive in trying to enable that innovation, although I think there's massive headroom here to improve. One of the attractions of these more regulated sectors is that once you're in, that regulation itself becomes something of a moat and allows companies to build and scale more insulated from competition than they would be. The other dynamic is that more and more of the economy is becoming regulated, simply put. I think we have this idea that we, over time, deregulate, whether that's to promote competition or innovation. But in reality, in the majority of cases, actually what we're doing is regulating more, whether that be the regulation of online content through the Online Safety Bill or changes in the regulation of voluntary carbon markets or the regulation of crypto or the 
what will um, emerge as the regulation of, of space as a sector. So actually we're seeing more and more regulation and that means that more and more startup activity will have to think about and understand what government and what regulators are doing in order to succeed. And that's the thing we help with here at Form. What changes do we need to see among our regulators to enable greater investment in more heavily regulated sectors and to make the UK a more attractive destination for investment? We would argue that the role of regulators in enabling or indeed in blocking innovation is probably the areas, area of biggest headroom when it comes to things we could do to promote innovation in the UK. Typically, we've thought about startups and the startup ecosystem as needing capital, as needing ideas and as needing talent. And we have those three things in abundance, actually, in the UK, even though the fundraising environment is tougher. I think good ideas can find funding. We have lots of IP, a really well-diversified and well-funded science base. What we see as the pinch point for all that innovation getting to market and becoming commercially relevant is actually when it collides with the regulatory frontier. Can it get through to the other side of a regulator's authorization journey? And while that's possible, it's expensive, it's time-consuming, and in some cases, actually impossible. And we haven't spent nearly enough time thinking about the role of regulators as the, the pinch point in the ecosystem. Particularly post-Brexit, we now have a set of opportunities to take that, frankly, we've spent far little time thinking about. One big element of that is actually regulators' capacity to think and to spend time on innovation. Most of them in a sector, whether that's the Civil Aviation Authority in, in, in aerospace, whether that's the Financial Conduct Authority in, fin in fintech, uh, food standards, um, competition authorities, their main priority is to safeguard markets and make sure that consumers and society is impacted, is, is insulated from the impacts of bad actors or those who don't uphold the right standards. And that makes sense. But the other side of the ledger is the innovation that does or doesn't happen as a result of regulators enforcing those standards. And regulators spend the vast majority of their time thinking about the safety side, and they spend much less time, almost just, it's just a residual thinking about how to promote innovation. And that's a shame. And I think it we don't have a very good sense of the opportunities that we're losing and the innovation that we're losing when regulators either don't have the time or don't have the willingness to focus on innovation. What is the government's role in working with regulators in order to improve conditions for investment? So one of the things we can do is to take this resourcing question off the table. We're not talking about huge sums of money here. We're talking about five, 10, maybe up to a hundred million pounds across all the regulators in the UK to make a massive difference to their ability to resource, staff, understand, authorise cutting-edge innovation that frankly they don't have at the moment. And this is the context of billions and billions of pounds a year of funding the UK government puts into science research and the billions more into incentivising investment in early-stage companies. So it's an absolute drop in the ocean compared to what's already spent, but it's an area of acute need where a very small amount of resource could unlock a huge amount more innovation. There's also a really important question about whether regulators have the incentives to promote innovation or not. You know, we know that one regulator says something along the lines of, look, I'm interested in innovation, but I just don't have the incentive to prioritise it. Because if something goes wrong, we're on the hook. If we get something right, then okay, that's great, but where's the real, where's the rub? And so we need to find a way of providing regulators with the incentives and the political cover to take and invest in taking thought through risks on innovation so that products and ideas can get to market 
and then live or die based on their you know their their own commercial relevance but not simply on the attitude and the time a regulator has to happen to hand so there is work going on in central government to think about this and it's critical that the startup and the venture community get behind that work and support it but for too long this idea of of regulatory capacity for innovation has been overlooked before we go we'd like to thank our speakers for their time and to remind you to subscribe to Policy Pulse to get Tech UK's analysis of the latest tech policy news.